Gracious God, we um, ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would help us go deeper in here and then send us out to grow deeper out there, uh, that we would connect in the places that you have us. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we ask now that you would help us hear what it is that you are saying to each of us. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, Author Stephen Pressfield, in his book, The War of Art, writes this. He says, In the animal kingdom, individuals define themselves in one of two ways. By their rank within a hierarchy, a hen in a pecking order, a wolf in a pack, or by their connection to a territory, a home base, a hunting ground, a turf. This is how individuals, humans as well as animals, achieve psychological security. They know where they stand. The world makes sense. Of the two orientations, the hierarchical seems to be the default setting. It's the one that kicks in automatically when we're kids. We run naturally in packs and clicks without thinking about it. We know who's the top dog and who's the underdog. And we know our own place. We define ourselves instinctively, it seems, by our position within the schoolyard, the gang, the club. It's only later in life, usually after a stern education in the University of Hard Knocks, that we begin to explore the territorial alternative. And when he talks about territory, he's not just, just talking about place. He, he kind of expands it a little bit. He says, Stevie Wonder's territory is a piano. Arnold Schwarzenegger's territory is a gym. Bill Gates's territory is, or was, Microsoft. Pressfield goes on to argue that a territory provides sustenance. A territory sustains us without any external input. A territory can only be claimed by work, and I would add time and commitment to that as well. A territory returns exactly what you put in. In other words, they're, they're fair. Every erg of energy you put in goes infallibly into your account. What you deposit, you get back. I think this distinction makes for an interesting paradigm. And it can even be helpful in understanding ourselves better as we try and locate ourselves maybe on this spectrum a little bit. Are you a person who figures out where you are in life by your hierarchy, or are you a person in life that figures out who you are and where you are by your territory? When you're upset, do you contact three of your friends, or do you go somewhere? Are you more concerned about how others perceive you or how you perceive yourself in place? Do you feel more off when you lose some of your status, or when you're kept from a particular place or task. More than that, in a world that overvalues rank and fame, in a world that overvalues image over substance, in a world that cares for the externals more than the internals, we become inundated by the hierarchical mindset, where our value is simply always a function of how others perceive us and how we can then improve our standing in their eyes. 
But what if we were less defined by our rank in the hierarchy and more defined by our location? Could we be more defined by our territory? Now, as Christians, we know that our territory is the kingdom of God. But I wonder if to a lesser degree, it's also supposed to be the place, our location on a map, that God has placed us. How do you create this territorial mindset? How do you learn to love a place? How do you work on behalf of a place? I wonder how differently we would experience life if we were to pour ourselves into a territory. I wonder what we would get back. Which brings us to our sermon series this morning. Today we continue the second part of our neighboring series. In the first part we talked about how we as Christians are called to love our neighbors. And we talked about how maybe that's not just referring to everybody. But maybe it's also talking about the people who actually live near us. We would call them our neighbors. Maybe God has put us where we are so that God can love our neighbors through us. But then more than that, maybe God has also put us where we are because God wants to love our neighborhoods through us. Maybe part of the reason that sometimes we don't grow deeper in the faith is, and deeper in relationships really is because we're simply not rooted in a place. Maybe we don't neighbor very well because we don't think we or our neighbors are going to be there all that long. But maybe that connection to our, to our neighborhoods could give us the stability and security and the context to grow deeper relationships and to grow deeper as people. Maybe the more we invest in our neighborhoods, in our communities, the more we will experience and receive back in rootedness and in belonging. Maybe God designed place to be important. Maybe God put us in this place, in this time, for a purpose. And maybe this place is part of God's plan for growing us deeper. So as we think about that, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of Nehemiah, verse 1, chapter 1. While you're turning there, I want to put this one in context because we haven't read this one, in, uh, I think, in my time here. Last week, we left the Israelites in exile. They had been taken out of their homeland and brought to a foreign land. They were brought to Babylon. And last week, we saw how God told them to live as if they lived there. Live as if you're staying. Put down roots. Invest in that place. Build houses, plant gardens, create families. Live as if you're staying. This week we'll see part of their process of return back to their homeland. Our passage picks up, as our passage picks up, we find ourselves in Persia, uh, the ones who beat the Babylonians, who were the ones who in turn beat the Israelites. And we'll find one of the Israelites, Nehemiah, in the court of the Persian ruler Artaxerxes. And at this point in the story, in history, some of the Israelites have returned to the promised land, but obviously not all of them. So our story picks up in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. 
Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exiles and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if, you, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests." Amen. As our passage begins this morning, Nehemiah receives word from his brother or from one of his kinsmen that the people who have returned from exile are in trouble and that the walls of Jerusalem are broken and burned, leaving the city defenseless. Nehemiah's reaction is palpable, emotional, visceral. Our passage says, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is cut to the heart, greatly disturbed by this news. What's more, you get the sense that this wasn't just his initial reaction 
But he spent the next few days mourning and fasting and weeping. He spent weeks then praying, asking God to bring the people back to the place they belong. And he doesn't do this self-righteously, but humbly he prays, acknowledging the sins of his people, even his own family, even himself, the mistakes they've made. But he also prays passionately for the Lord's help. But that's not all. He doesn't just weep over and pray for his city. He then starts preparing. He starts planning. He starts plotting for how he can help solve the problem. He recognizes the issues at play. He researches what needs to be done. And then he starts rolling out his plan. About four months after his visitors bring him the bad news, an opportunity finally presents itself. The king is having a party. He needs his cupbearer and Nehemiah. And Nehemiah comes. And Nehemiah takes this opportunity to come before the king and present his request. He shows up wearing his heart on his sleeve in a manner of speaking, and the king takes notice. And it should be pointed out that this was a risky thing to do, because if you displease the king, the king could remove you not just from his presence or from your position, but from the world. What's more, sometimes kings don't like it when grumpy people interrupt their parties to make large requests of them when they're trying to have fun. Nehemiah knew this. And so he knew he was putting his life on the line. That said, maybe because of his love of his place, he does. He takes the chance. He allows his face to be downcast. And when the king asks what's wrong, he presents the problems. And the king looks upon him and his request with favor. It's also important to notice that in the midst of the exchange, Nehemiah doesn't just pray for help. But he also answers the king's questions. In other words, Nehemiah has a plan. He has prepared for this meeting extensively. He even has some very specific and calculated requests about what it will take to be successful. And the king grants his requests. And the whole rest of the book of Nehemiah, which we're not going to read today, talks about how he goes to Jerusalem and he works to rebuild the walls despite all the challenges and the very real opposition that arises. But for us today, there are three things that strike me in our passage in light of our sermon series. First, I'm struck by how much thinking and preparation Nehemiah puts into his place, into Jerusalem. Second, I'm struck by Nehemiah's willingness to work on behalf of his place. And finally, I'm struck by Nehemiah's love of his place. And I want us to work through those three ideas in the remainder of our time as we think about our respective places. The first thing that strikes me about our passage is how much work and preparation and prayer goes into Nehemiah's plan. You'll notice that Nehemiah knows how long the journey will take. He knows what challenges he will face. He knows what resources he will need. In other words, Nehemiah doesn't go blindly before the king, nor does he go naively to Jerusalem. He has obviously used the last four months well. He has put a lot of thought in on behalf of his place. What's more, it seems to be clear that he knows what the biggest issues are. There are many problems in Jerusalem. There are even more problems in Judah. But the one he chooses to focus in on may be the most urgent. 
You can repair a lot of different things in Jerusalem, but if there are no walls to protect them, they can just be knocked down again. I wonder as you think about your neighborhood, as you think about your town, as you think about your community, what are the issues that those places face? What are behind those issues? Or maybe more importantly, have you ever really thought about your place beyond what it offers for you and for yours? I mean, when was the last time you even considered that you may be able to serve your city in some way and actually make a difference? That you could get involved locally and help? That you could do something to make things better, not just for you, but for your neighbors, for your community? That's not to say that you should just jump in without thinking. Nehemiah didn't. Nehemiah, Nehemiah took a lot of time and thought and put a lot of prayer into his city. And maybe that's the first step. Do you ever think about your neighborhood? Do you ever pray for your city? Maybe that's how we all should start with prayer. Maybe we should add our zip code in our prayers. Praying for our zip code wouldn't be a bad start. Thinking about communities is part of it. But it's going to take more than that. And that brings us to our second point. Nehemiah engages. Nehemiah sets to work. Nehemiah goes to rebuild the walls. He doesn't commentate from the sidelines. He doesn't leave it up to the powers that be. He doesn't send someone else but he sets to work himself. And be careful here, because if you're like me, this is where the excuses start. That first point, no problem. I'll think about it, done. I'll pray for it later. But when it actually comes to actually doing something, that's when I start to get my excuses going. Sure, sure, Nehemiah could be sent from Persia to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, because he's probably not very busy. And he's probably the right age. And he probably knows how to build walls. And he's probably the perfect person for the job in general. And most importantly, he's somebody else. He's anybody else. But it doesn't work that way. Because as far as we know, Nehemiah has no qualifications for this job. His job is to be cupbearer. He knows how to hold a cup. Time to get busy. Now he's going to lead a massive construction project in a decently foreign land with people who he doesn't really know all that well in the midst of some very actual, real, dangerous opposition. In other words, maybe Nehemiah also doesn't have the qualifications to be the guy to change his place. And yet he does have a willingness to go. He does have a willingness to try. He does have a willingness to partner with God to bring about change. And maybe that's what it takes. Where might God be calling you to step up? To make a difference? To get involved? To do something? Which brings us to our final point and the one that I find the most interesting and really the most, I would say, foreign Nehemiah has a deep love of and passion for his place, for Jerusalem. 
And I, and I think this strikes me as unique because of how rare it is today. I think most of us see ourselves as being in a place, or maybe from a place, but not for a place, not of a place, not belonging to a place. I mean, if, God forbid, and this is a really huge hypothetical, but if something should happen to the Metroplex, and, and somehow everybody got out first, um, all, you got out, your friends got out, your family got out, your coworkers got out, all your neighbors got out, all their neighbors got out, everyone for some reason, in a weird kind of Christmas Day miracle holiday, we all left the Metroplex, and something happened to the Metroplex, and then we were, we, you, you could go back, but you wouldn't want to. I don't know that we would grieve all that much for the place. Most of us, I, th I think, would simply kind of try and get on with life and move to wherever we would live next and, and just get started. Uh, but I don't know that our hearts would be grieved over the land, the, the, the dirt, the actual place all that much. I could be wrong, and some of you absolutely would, but, but I don't know that a lot of people would be all that grieved over the, the dirt here, this place. Nehemiah had a deep love of place that I think has gone, become foreign to, to too many of us. And so I guess the question becomes, as we culminate this part of the series, can you learn to love a place like that? Can, can we develop, should we develop a deeper attachment to the ground, to, to the land, to our neighborhoods, to our cities. I mean, Nehemiah has a deep love of Jerusalem, and he's not even there. It doesn't seem like he ever has been. But he still loves it. How much more should we be able to learn to love the place we are, that God has placed us in this time, in this place? So I kind of want to end by just getting really practical for a few moments. How practically can you change how you feel, how you experience your place? How do you learn to love your city, your town, your community, your neighborhood? And I found some ideas. Uh, most of them were in a book called This Is Where You Belong. And, but they all can kind of be summed up in this one simple phrase, this one little truism. If you want to love your town, act like someone would act who loves your town. Do those things that a person would do. If they loved it, they would do this. So I, who want to love it, will do those things and, and maybe I will grow that love. This can start out very simply. Get out in your town. Walk more. Spend a little more time getting involved in your town. What are the events coming up? What are the attractions that go on? How might you experience your town more? Sometimes it's that simple. But it doesn't stop there. Find the stores that are unique to this town and shop there. Find the foods and restaurants that are unique to this town and, and eat at them. Find the trails that are in your town and hike them. Find the places that are unique to this place and enjoy them. Visit them. And you get bonus points if you learn the names of the people who are already there, who are already invested in your place. 
And then, of course, there are more. Find ways to care for your town. Volunteer more. Engage in local issues more. Maybe part of the reason we don't feel connected to place as much is because we aren't connected to place as much. We don't invest in the place we are. Become a regular in your town. Become a local in your town. Become someone who belongs. Choose to live as if you're staying. It strikes me that none of these things are very hard. None of them are all that hard. But they do take commitment. They take a little bit more intentionality. They take a little bit more investment. They take a little bit more effort. But I think they are how we root better. Again, if you want to love your town, act like someone who loves your town would act. Nehemiah loved his town. And he lived it out. He thought about it, he acted upon it, he loved it, and lo and behold, he changed it for the better. And he himself was changed for the better in the process. Maybe we are called to love our places too. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you, you have put us here, that you have called us to live in place that you've put us in a neighborhood, that you've put us in a town, in a community, in a city. Lord, help us to root better, invest more. Lord, help us think about our towns and, and pray about our towns. Lord, help us work on behalf of our places and towns. And Lord, as we do those things, we pray that you would change our hearts and then you would grow in us a deep love of where we are. And that that would change us. That that would give us a different perspective on life. A deeper stability. A deeper security. And Lord, while we know ultimately our security and our strength is all in you. And, and, and we are rooted most deeply in you. We also acknowledge that you have us here for a time. And so we pray that we would live as you have called us to live. That we would be good stewards, not just of the things that you have given us, but we would also be good stewards of the place you have us. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we continue now in worship.
And now let us affirm our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. At this time, I'd like to invite forward Frank Allen. Uh, we are in the midst of and, and culminating our stewardship season today, and I've asked uh, Frank, or Hank asked Frank, uh, to, to, to speak on behalf of the church. Thank you, Tim. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be here for five years now. <laughs> 